Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas talking. Hello, everyone. How are you? Great. I'm Emily Ramshaw. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, and we are so thrilled to have you all here. I'm going to call this, because this is my event, the first official event of the Texas Tribune <laughs> Festival, <laughs> the live Tribcast. Uh, if you listen to the Tribcast regularly every week, uh, which I hope you all do, and if you don't, you're totally missing out, you will, this man on the end will be familiar to you, our executive editor and co-founder of the Texas Tribune, Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Yes. Um, I am also supremely excited to tell you about the four panelists we have joining us today, two who are up here now, two who will be up here in a few minutes. Uh, for the first segment, we will have Texas Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman and Gina Ortiz-Jones, candidate for the 23rd Congressional District. Quick round of applause for these two. Uh, and in the second segment, we will have uh, author and CNN contributor Amanda Carpenter and Dave Weigel, the national political correspondent for The Washington Post, whose plane just landed. He's jumping in an Uber. So if you see him <laughs> running up to stage or us filibustering, that's why. Quick round of applause for our second set of panelists, who you'll see in a couple of months. I also want to tell you that today's Tribcast is presented by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas and the University of Texas at Austin and supported by H&K Strategies and the Texas A&M University System. Not sure how we got uh, A&M and UT to both sponsor the same podcast. This is, this is when they out, found out. Yes, it worked out great for us. So. Um, before we begin, I want to quickly shout out the members who make our journalism possible, some of whom are sitting with us now in the audience. Thank you so much for your support. As a special token of our appreciation, two of you were randomly handed a card when you walked in. If you are one of those lucky two members, can you raise your hands? Woohoo! Congratulations, you've just won an Amazon Echo or an Amazon Echo Spot provided by Silicon Labs. So congratulations. Thank you for being a Texas Tribune member. Um, I think you should know that if you are not a Texas Tribune member yet, stuff like this is going to be happening in the sessions you're in all weekend long. Uh, anyone who donates $35 or more to our nonprofit newsroom uh, this weekend is going to be eligible for these types of things. Or if you're a member already, that's great too. But in addition to this cool stuff, if you donate $35 or more to our nonprofit newsroom before midnight on Saturday, you have a chance to win a quote-unquote cosmic Marfa getaway, which includes hotel accommodations from our friends at El Cosmico and dinner for two at Cochineal. This is a pretty amazing trip, so visit texastribune.org slash Marfa2018 for the full giveaway rules. You can also make your donation super easily by texting Tribune to 444-999. That's Tribune. If you need me to spell it for you, you're in big trouble. 444-999. <laughs> okay, we're going to get down to business. Sorry about all that housekeeping. Uh, I want to start with the biggest news of the day, the ongoing, still ongoing Kavanaugh hearing and the now three, now four, now five, I'm not sure what the number is now, uh, women who have come forward with allegations that range from sexual assault to sexual harassment. Um, Judge Guzman, you're obviously a woman, a Republican. You serve on Texas's highest court. Tell me, uh, in your legal opinion, how this is all going to play out. <laughs> with those kinds of opinions, still, I may yeah. need a promotion at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still glad you signed up. <laughs> Fine. First of all, thank you for inviting me to share some thoughts with you today. I do think it's important that that judges get to know the, the people that we serve, and that there's more transparency in the judiciary, and that you get a glimpse uh, on the people that make the most important legal decisions in the state and, and decide the most complex legal issues. On the Kavanaugh hearings, like I'm sure everyone in this room, I've been listening most of the day and uh, listening with, with the years of a judge. I was a trial court judge and then an intermediate appellate court judge. And so when I think about these issues, I, you know, I go back to the Constitution and Article Two and the Senate's role. And I also think about uh, the seriousness of sexual assault allegations, and I know as a minority, as a woman, as someone who came of age in the 80s, 
that it is difficult for women to speak up. So you can't read so much into how many decades it took to come forward, but at the same time, as a judge, due process in, in our Constitution requires that we also hear from the accused and that we're, this is not a criminal trial. So we're not looking for beyond a reasonable doubt, but we're looking for the truth. And that is a judge's role to look for the truth. And so, you know, that's what's been happening today. The American public, society as the jury, has had a chance to fear, hear from both sides. And I don't, I think all sexual assault allegations have to be taken seriously. And I think that there needs to be a forum, as there was today. And I think the Senate, under its advice and consent role, has a big, big responsibility. Following today's testimony, I said I cried during both, when she testified and when he testified. It's compelling. So you're not ready to say one way or the other which way you think this is going to end up tomorrow or today? I, I don't know. And beyond that, as a judge, I'm not going to comment on the suitability or fitness of another judge for higher office. Well, Gina, you're not a judge. We can get I am not your, a judge. <laughs> we can get all of your opinions here. Tell me, I mean, is this something that you hear playing out on the campaign trail? I mean, how, how much of a mobilizer has this been? What are you hearing out uh, in the district as you, you know, block walk and meet people? Yeah. So I listened uh, this morning, um, and I listened not as a, you know, in any professional capacity. I frankly listened just as an American. Right. And I was thinking about this person that is going to this was not, frankly, about her. This was about the suitability right, of the person that is being uh, considered for a lifetime appointment. Um, and so I had to think about um, be even before these allegations. Right. This process was quite flawed in terms of the, the Senate Judiciary Committee having access to this person's full professional record. You know, he talked about some of these ex very formative experiences while he was working in the White House and how those contributed to his understanding. And most certainly uh, on one of the things as it relates to whether or not, you know, a president should be held to certain certain uh, uh, responsibilities or, or, or whether the law would apply to the president in certain cases. And so I'm quite concerned, obviously, about the very serious allegations uh, against him. But I mean, this has been flawed for a very long time as it relates to not even having access to his full professional record. So as an American, I'm very concerned uh, that we're going to, uh, and frankly, there is no time clock, right? There is no, there is no need to push this through. The American people are, are owed, uh, I think, a, a full review, um, certainly of somebody's character, but also of their professional thoughts as, as this person is going to be, I mean, he's got like, what, 20 good years in him, right? Like, <laughs> he's going to be looking at some of the, or more, right? He's going to be looking at some of the most serious issues um, affecting our, our country. Um, and so I think we owe it not only to him, not only to Dr. Ford, some of the other accused, but to the American. American people, um, and certainly to our Constitution, right, that we have a full review so that we can all have faith in, in the institution of the Supreme Court. And this man is not new to higher office, and he's not new to uh, the FBI. There have been six FBI investigations, and I think a lot of time for uh, opinions to be formed about, I think everyone agrees he's qualified. Some people may say not. So it's about fitness. But against, you know, as far as getting into a person's history, he's gone through six FBI investigations. I've got a colleague who was recently nominated to a higher federal bench. Those are very deep, very thorough investigations, and I know because I've been called. And so, so we have to look at what's going on against the backdrop of six FBI investigations. No, I, I think, think that, just to be clear, the information that has surfaced was not accounted for in those background checks, right? So that's, there's new information that deserves to be reviewed. But his professional background was brought up, and that is part of the FBI investigation. This is really about persuading four people. You know, you have, you know, a president makes a nomination, and you have the people who are with the president and say, oh, of course, and you have the people who are not with the president, and they say, no, of course. And then you've got these senators in the middle. Right now we're down to a couple or maybe three or four Republicans who are looking at this thing through the lens of, you know, all of the proper things and also the politics of it. Can I afford to vote for, can I afford to vote against this nominee? And, you know, we're really talking about a jury of four who are going to make a decision on whether there are 51 Republican votes for this. If there are 50, then you throw in Mike Pence. If there's 49, it's over.
Well, we're going to return to this topic at length in our next lineup, but uh, I want to pivot in talking a little bit about um, your race in particular, Gina, and I also I want to talk about San Antonio. We had a really interesting election here a couple of weeks ago. Gosh, two weeks ago, last week, yeah. uh, where we had a special just a minute ago. yeah, just a minute ago feels like it. Where we had a special election in San Antonio for a state senate seat, uh, and that race um, it went for the Republican. And this is a, you know a trend we have now seen in a few different races in San Antonio, where a Republican is is winning in districts that have historically been Democratic. Um, talk to me. Does that have you concerned, given that San Antonio is in the district that you are, are running for? Not at all, right? Why not? I mean, this was this was manipulated from the beginning, right? There's a reason the Republicans called this race in September. Uh, it's because they knew they could not win it in November, right? Let's be very clear about that. Uh, so, you know, it's it's one election. Um, you know, yes, 70% of this district is is Hispanic, and I think all communities though want to be represented. You can't just show up in communities two weeks before the election and think you're somehow going to win them over, right? So, we've been working this large large district uh, for a very long time, and for folks that might not be familiar. It's it stretches from San Antonio to El Paso, two time zones, 29 counties, 40% of the U.S. border with Mexico runs in this district. So we've been working this district since this district since I, uh, you know, announced my run in August. We've been all throughout it. We'll continue talking about the issues um, uh, as it relates, you know, specific issues in, in certain communities. But you know, everyone wants to talk about healthcare. Everyone wants to talk about immigration. Everyone wants to talk about public education, the things that are affecting their daily lives. So we'll we will continue talking uh, with. With, with voters about the issues that matter to them all throughout this district and will prevail on November 6th. Judge, are Latinos a safe bet for Democrats in Texas? You know, I've run um, two statewide elections against uh, predictions that I would not be able to win uh, the Republican primary. I became the highest vote getter in Republican primary history. I then became the highest vote getter in any general election in the state of Texas, anyone who's ever run for any office, black, white, any other uh, ethnicity, I became the highest vote getter. And I understood from the beginning, you can't count on people because of the color of their skin or socioeconomic backgrounds to vote a certain way. They need to hear your message on the issues. That's what people care about. Diabetes is rampant in Hispanic communities. We don't want you to come to us and, and assume that we will vote you know, for you because you're on the D side or on the R side. We want to vote the issues like everyone else. So no, I don't think it's a given, but I think my party has a lot of work to do to change the narrative and, and to find where there's coalescence on the issues. What do you, to, and from your different positions, think the, the politics of Texas are right now? Is this as red a state as it has been? Is there, um, I mean, we're getting purple splotches here and there. Dallas has become a blue county. Harris County is going that way. Um, what's the rest of the state doing? You're, you're in a district that has been a swing district for a long time. Um, I Will think Hurd, she's wearing purple for a reason. Right, right. <laughs> Will Hurd, <laughs> Will Hurd um, won this two times in a row, which was not the pattern of the district. Is that, um, is it becoming more red out there or is it, What's the atmosphere? What do you see in the So state? Hillary won this district by three points, right. right? So the candidate matters. Talking about the issues matters. Showing up matters, right? Not only do you know the issue, but folks really want to understand, are you going to have the moral courage to go to the mat for me? right, on the issues that matter. And so I talk about my life experiences. I, I went to John Jay High School in San Antonio, Texas. You start with 900 kids, only 500 graduate. There's a certain set of life experiences there that no one's gonna after ever have to question where I am on CHIP, the importance of children's health insurance program, right? Because I was raised by a single mother. I know exactly what it's like when your health insurance plan is I hope you don't get sick. I'm also a first-generation American. My mother came to this country after graduating from the number one university in the Philippines. And so that's why you know, it's so disheartening when we have this immigration discussion and people have clearly forgotten that for the vast majority of people on this planet, they know from a very young age that in order to live their best life, they will have to leave their home country. And for many people, that means trying to come to our country in any form or fashion. So again, yes it is, you know, yes I've served my country in and out of uniform for 14 years working in national security, so I bring that to the table. But I think what's arguably missing in Congress right now are some of these life experiences and thus the moral courage to really represent these communities in a way in which they deserve. Is Trump a factor in this election? My opponent's voting record is the greatest factor in this election. So Trump's not? 
So he votes, uh, so my, the person I'm running against votes 97% of the time with this administration, right? Uh, you know, he's voted to repeal the ACA uh, eight times. Uh, he's voted to fund the wall twice. So we are talking about the issues that matter for, for in people's every single day. And so we're, we're tying, uh, again, how he votes in Washington, how that's different than what he talks about in the district, but how those votes are affecting their every day. Does it make a difference to voters judge that you are Latina, that you're a woman? I mean, when you um, are in the voting booth or when folks are in the voting, voting booth in Texas, how much does the polling show that either of those things help or hurt you? I think the, the polling actually, and there was a, a lawsuit um, here in Texas to change the way um, judges are elected statewide. I am also the first Latina elected statewide office. I might have said that. but. Uh, it's relevant f for the point I'm about to make. Uh, so the ju the lawsuit was that we should go to single member districts because Latinos and Hispanics could not get elected um, because of race. And so this went to a federal judge in Corpus Christi uh, who showed that courage that you look for in judges. The prediction was, well, she was appointed by President Obama, and she is certainly going to find that uh, the, you know, that, that elections are based more on race than, than partisanship. She did not. She issued an order uh, uh, finding against the plaintiffs and pointed to my race as she said, in fact, though she got a lot of the Hispanic votes, they didn't all go there. She said this is more about partisanship. So when you talk about elections, what, you know, whether they're local or whether they're statewide, a lot of dis the conversation comes back to exactly what you asked. Is Texas changing? Is it more purple? Is it going to stay red? And I think the polls are in different places, but we've seen Dallas County and we've seen what's happened in Harris County and we see some of, I've run in, in a 10 to 14 county district, some of those counties have changed. So the, the conversation is more you know, what can each political party do to talk to voters about the issues that matter? Because more and more, that's what they're voting. And is that the case, Ross? I mean, uh, you've looked into this a lot, obviously. Like, how much does a Hispanic surname help or hurt you, depending on your party? How much does being a woman help or hurt you, depending on your party? I mean, the conventional wisdom on, on women on the ballot is one or two points in Texas. That, you know, that that's a plus. Um, the the Hispanic surname is sort of unsettled. I'm from El Paso. It's a big boon there. Um, and I mean, it works, right? And Maybe one for Gina Ortiz Jones, well, whose name sounds like Hispanic surname. There's but places, there's yes. places well, where it's a. Yeah. World history is a right. thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Spanish yeah. colonialism. It's, that's yeah. where, it's, <laughs> where it's been problematic is in Republican primaries. And, you know, the. Um, Victor Carrillo and Tony Garza, and you know, there's there's a bunch of cases, but then there are cases like yours where you know it's gone the other way. You know, I think one's considered a plus, one's considered a minus, and it's not just Hispanic voters that you're talking about. It's people voting, how people vote, and do they vote for people with names like theirs, or you know, do they vote for people, you know, based on party or something else? I think people. in judicial races, party affiliation has at least the way we select judges in Texas has more to do with it. And I think that's what the judge found, uh, Judge Ramos, and, and that's been my experience. I mean, you can't break the, you know, the, the numbers mold without partisanship coming into that, more so than surname. This is the last year Texas is gonna have a statewide election based on, uh, with straight ticket voting. Mm -hmm. um, is that good or bad? Do you wish it was already gone? Do you wish it was still here? I mean, if you're a judge, that's sort of, you know, fly the flag is how you win an election. Um, We've got this confusing thing at the top of the Texas ballot this time where we've got a U.S. Senate race that's polling in single digits pretty consistently across the summer, a governor's race that's polling in wide double digits, so it's hard to tell are they pulling an R lever or a D lever. Kind of take this apart a little bit. How are you thinking about straight ticket voters? Well, we are talking, well, certainly we would love for them to do that, right? If they're, if they're a Democrat, we're encouraging them to do that. Uh, but again, this is about, you know, it's not just Gina Ortiz Jones on the ballot. What's on the ballot? Your health care is on the ballot, right? Safer gun laws are on the ballot, right? An immigration policy that reflects our values, that is on the ballot. So it, it always goes back to these issues. Um, and again, you know, understanding, uh, yes, that is going away, straight tick is, is going away, but what are we also seeing in this part of Texas, right? What are we seeing that is affecting people's um, wanting to participate in processes that are there to serve them, right? I'm running against somebody who has yet to offer an opinion on where he is on the citizenship question on the census, 
right, in a 70% Hispanic district, right? When you look at uh, some of the other uh, issues that are going on in this area, it, it's amazing the, other, the, the ways in which they, they are, you know, frankly, inciting a little bit of fear in some of these communities. Um, and when people don't trust the processes or the institutions there to serve them, that's when communities break down. How, are the, how is the issue of families being separated at the border this summer playing into this election? You were talking about the issues that are important in your district. How big of a conversation is that in your district? So it's a huge issue. I mean, Tornillo is in this district. Tornillo, where they're setting up the tent community for the families that have been separated from their, from their uh, families at the border, that's in this district. Um, the number of times that I've been there to, uh, to again, highlight the need to reunite these families, uh, that the sounds, uh, images shock the American conscience, and they should. The fact that it's happening right in our backyard is even more egregious. Um, there, when I'm, in, when I'm there, though, I am reminded that uh, no one at that rally in Tornillo is from Tornillo. If you, are fr if you are from Tornillo, you are probably on your way to your second or third job. You don't have the luxury to stand out uh, for a couple of hours on something that does not directly impact your ability to put food on the table. Right? So while that is an issue that is getting a lot of national attention, as it should, what are the people in Torneo worried about? Again, putting food on the table. And oh, by the way, there are some parts of that district, uh, some parts of that community, rather, that still have arsenic in their water. Right? So we have to be focused on, again, the things that matter in people's every day, and, uh, and frankly, their kids every day as well. Judge, you're the child of Mexican immigrants. How have you felt about your uh party and Trump's leadership is when it comes to uh, sort of narrowing the path to asylum in the United States? You know, I, we need comprehensive immigration reform. Over several administrations, Congress has failed to bring meaningful reform. When you have a system that's not structured to serve the interest of America, but also to properly serve people who are risking it all to come here, I, I just cringe when I read about the abuses of immigrants, and I've seen it where they work so hard in the sun, and then they don't get paid, and there's nowhere they can go. Or where they're, when they're crossing the border and they die there, but that's the result of a failed immigration system. I'm the daughter of immigrants. My parents had elementary school educations, put seven kids through college. I live the American dream. But this dream, the way I lived it, is not accessible. And it's ex not accessible because Congress has failed. So what should they do? We need comprehensive immigration reform. And a good start was to stop separating those families. That is not an answer. What we also need to do, to be clear, uh, we need to pass a Clean Dream Act, right? Between Texas and California, that is 45% of our nation's dreamers. Um, 800,000 young people in this country, we made a promise to them we should keep it. Um, and this is, again, going actually back to the public safety concern. I was talking to the sheriff uh, of Maverick County, which is, so Eagle Pass is the main city in that county. It's right on the border. I was talking to the sheriff at the end of last year. And he said, we're going to have one of the lowest rates of reported domestic violence. Reported is the operative word there. So when communities no longer uh, trust the institutions that are there to keep them safe, right? They don't know who's going to show up at the door. Is it ICE? Is it the sheriff? Is it the police? Who is it? So when communities don't trust the institutions or are fearful of the institutions that are supposed to keep them safe, that's when communities break down. So not taking steps that would actually, again, allow people uh, to live fully, contribute, contribute fully. And again, we can do this, right? But, but uh, unfortunately, Unfortunately, we've got members of Congress that see uh, dreamers as political pawns and not as people we need to keep a promise to. Let me just mention sort of the court system's response. Part of my work at the court involves access to justice, and that's finding ways to open the civil courthouse for low-income Texans. There are a little bit over 5 million of, of our neighbors who live at or below the poverty line. When, when they get kicked out of an apartment for asking for somebody to fix you know, plumbing, for example, there's nowhere for them to turn. When they are victims of domestic violence, nowhere for them to turn. But the Supreme Court of Texas, through the Access to Justice Foundation and Commission, works tirelessly to provide funding for lawyers on the civil side. You're guaranteed a lawyer in the criminal case not on the civil side. So I actually did some PSA commercials in Spanish encouraging women to call this hotline that, that we had funded to report that domestic violence, to try to find an avenue that allays their concerns. 
and to try to educate judges about their proper role in, dis in responding to, to those consequences. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad the judge brought the, this up, though, the difference between the civil and, and criminal cases. I've actually visited an ICE detention, de ICE detention facility. I thought you said a nice detention facility. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. Whoa. An ICE, very, no, no, very, no, 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 no. Top notch. ICE, ICE detention facility in El Paso. And, uh, you know, the number of women that I met, this was probably about two months ago at this point, uh, the number of women that I met that have been there since August of last year have yet to talk to a lawyer, have yet to talk to a lawyer, right? Uh, so this, this zero tolerance policy has actually made, made us less safe because now these are no longer civil cases, they're now criminal cases. So you flooded the court system, right? So you're, and because now everybody has to be treated the same, you're no longer able to prioritize those that actually pose the greatest threat to our country, right? So this zero tolerance policy makes us less safe. All right, well, we are gonna give a huge round of applause to these two and then bring up our next set of panelists. Thank you so much, Judge Guzman. Thank you, Gina Ortiz-Jones. Thank you, ladies. And it looks like Dave Weigel's flight made it. So join me, Amanda Carpenter, Dave Weigel. Join us up here on stage. Nope, wherever you want to be. Congratulations. Did your luggage make it? Uh, we'll find out later. I knew Some you were going to make it. Yeah. Last thing, and last, uh, this is not a, not a, luckily not a sponsor, but I got some message from Dave that was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to force Delta to send my uh, luggage en route. Through so. kindness, through, you know, positive messages, uh, meditation, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Terrific. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to jump back in with the three of you to the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, given that the two of you are on the ground, well, were on the ground in Washington until you decided to come here. Thank you Great very timing. much. Yes, Longer timing. time than expected, actually. <laughs> yes. Um, give us some predictions. How is this going to play out? Is he going to end up on the Supreme Court or not? Where are we going to be in, like, you know, two days, three days? Monday. Monday, right. You After first. the festival. <laughs> oh, uh, it, it's, it's a very limited question because it's really do uh, two of the three of uh, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Jeff Flake decide, okay, this is enough, I'm, I'm satisfied. Uh, if, if two of them do, then yes, and if, if, if two of them don't, then, then no. I don't think any Democrats are interested in bailing the guy out. Uh, while we've been in here, he's been giving a very combative, sometimes rambling uh, defense of himself. Which sometimes is, tearful. Sometimes yeah. tearful, uh, which I think the, the is probably actually doing a good job of convincing the one person who can decide whether he should continue in this job. Uh, well, to, I guess Don McGahn, maybe he's not convinced, but Donald Trump, I think, is convinced. It, it might be convinced by how um, combative he's being. But no, it, it's about those people. So it, it's, it's kind of a, it's a strange game theory uh, situation where he's not doing much to convince these senators who can vote him up or down. He's probably doing a little to convince the president that, yes, I want a guy in there who's going to say the Clintons are all behind what's happening to me this week. Is it unusual to have a Supreme Court nominee being this, you know, aggressive and, you know, seemingly partisan in this conversation today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he took the gloves off today, and it seemed at times that he wasn't trying to save his nomination so much as his reputation. And he's going to the wall and saying, you're not going to take me out. If you vote me down, so be it. But I am not going down without a fight. And I think the strange predicament that those Republican senators, I actually would say all of them, are is if no really clear information comes out that makes this decision. Like, you know, there's no smoking gun. How do you move forward with this cloud over him? But at the same time, if you think he's being smeared, how do you take him down? And so I think that's the predicament they're in. I mean, the previous panelist said, you know, she cried watching both people testify. I did too. I think you can look at both of them and believe them. And this is a question where you want to have absolute confidence and certainty moving forward this nomination because it is a lifetime appointment. And there's, I don't think there's going to be anything that makes this an easy decision. And so... So if there's not an easy decision, I mean, and how... Yeah. Ross, and let's yeah, say right. Congress is not good at hard decisions. Right. I mean, can, you believe, <laughs> can you believe both people in a circumstance like this? And then, and how do you move forward if... I, I think, you know, there's, a, there's that fact question and that legal question, and then there's the political question. I don't know that you can solve the fact question. It's a, you know, this is a he said, she said, actually in fact, you know, and you know, the, the stories don't match up and you just have to decide who you believe more or, you know, where the preponderance of the evidence is. You know, when you get down to it, the Republicans have to decide whether this is a risk to their majority, is it worth the risk? Um, and, you know, do they proceed or do they 
drop it here? And how many other races fall in? I mean, how many races in the House fall in because the Senate did this or that? Yeah, I would say, but, you know, if you really cynically, Republicans have already lost a lot of support with college-educated suburban women. You're losing that either way. And so I can see conversations in the room saying, just go ahead and do it. Um, I saw on Twitter, like, John Cornyn was tearing up during this conversation. I mean, you know. Nobody more than Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, I mean, I say that because it was so, I, I don't, I've never seen a male testify in public in this manner. It was so emotional. And he was just going to the wall saying, I don't understand what's happening. And I don't know, I don't know what's true and what's not. But both of them were so compelling. I mean, we're going to be studying this for years and years to come. It's almost like no one's ever told him, no, you can't have that job before. That's the way it seems to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I, I'm, making a, I'm making a little bit light of it, but... Um, you think? But the, the, yes, but the... the someone has to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the levity, actually. But he's going, to be, he's going to be a judge on the second yes. most powerful circuit in the country right. if this goes wrong with a damaged reputation. Doug Ginsburg has a damaged reputation. Merrick Garland's not a damaged reputation, but is kind of a, a punchline for a lot of people. Uh, does a he martyr recover? for others. Yes, and a martyr for others. He, he might head to, to martyr status. The, th the thing about this uh, is that there was this binary choice in 2016 where if you did not get behind Donald Trump and then Hillary Clinton would appoint Supreme Court justices, he's not as important <laughs> as, the, as the president is. There are many justice, uh, judges at the moment who could fill this role. Uh, and I, th I think he's. He, I, I think th there's some awareness of that with him. Uh, I, I, he has been mentioned as a potential Supreme Court nominee for tw for 12 years. So, in, in just in some of the responses he's given, I I think there's a human element there. But it's also I, I, he's he's only ever been promoted uh, his whole life, and I, some of, some of that is evident here too. Uh, now, it, it, leaving aside who you, who you believe, just uh, I, I think. You think, look at his accuser, whose life is upturned forever. She is a she is a, going to have. She Everyone's went from a peaceful forever. anonymity to something. Then this is when, whenever there is a case of women making an accusation, the idea they're in this for fame, they're in this for a book deal. It doesn't seem like her. Uh, I don't know. Make this a a battle of. Uh, that's why I keep trying to get it to the bland academic level of there will be a conservative Supreme Court nominee. And I think that's his. That is the fear for him. Is someone else could have this job. Thomas Harmon could have this job. Amy Coney Barrett could have this job. If Donald Trump is not convinced this is the best guy, if he's actually convinced that the Federal Society misled him by picking someone like this, uh, then something he really has I mean, probably been thinking about for decades is gone for him. Yeah, and I think this gets to the most likely scenario. Um, Donald Trump forces a vote. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh does lose that vote. And then they go forward with someone else yeah. at some point and but try to, but then it goes to the lame duck, which is another whole controversial thing where you have people who may be losing their Senate seats voting on a lifetime appointment. So you're back to game theory. I mean, which vote sustains the Republican majority in the Senate that will look at the second judge? Well, they, Mitch McConnell, he can jam that sucker through in November and December. He would, I mean, too. Here, and here's, he and here's what I think would. the calculation would be <laughs> for the people who are on the fence. Right. I think they could seriously, if nothing changes, go to the public and say, I do not have certainty on this nomination. I don't know who is right or who is wrong, but I know for a Supreme Court justice, I have to know. Mm -hmm. And that would be a reasonable, um, it, would, it would be brutal. It would continue to rip the Republican Party apart, but it's already in a million pieces on the floor, so fine. So, so, talk, about, so talk about Senate <laughs> procedure for a minute. If you're in a lame duck Republican Senate that's about to be replaced in January with a Democratic Senate, what are the chances for any nominee in that period, those two months? I mean, you still have the same amount of votes until December, until they break for the year. No, they would, they would do it, and Mitch McConnell has shown he is perfectly willing to say, I, no one's done this before, but it would get the result I want. I'm going to yep. do it. Um, I'm actually kind of curious. Let's, let's hypothesize. Uh, let's don't continue to guess. I don't have any. Either <laughs> you either guys either are as good as anybody else. None of us have inside information. Tell us a story. Yes. The, well, no, let's <laughs> hypothesize he is dropped. There are 40 days. No one has been confirmed in that time. He could say, somebody right now, we're going to rush him before the election. Mm -hmm. If they're not... Politically, it might be better for Republicans to be say, the here, is, here is a great nominee. The election is now not just a referendum on me. Yep. It is a referendum on Tom Hardiman or, Bre or Keith And Lager. that's how Donald Trump won in 2016. Right. And so the, and this map is honestly, the Senate map is actually better than the, the country as a whole mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. Republicans because that creates a, now it's a quandary that someone like Joe Manchin uh, has already answered, which is, yeah, But sure, you, you might be able to get him. a vote yeah. from him on a Barrett. 
Yeah, he might, he might, he might dodge uh, a couple times, but in debate, he said, "Oh, I'll listen to hearings." He, it's going to reset the clock, and it'll be a lot more like 2016. Politically, yep. that probably is better for them. I mean, I think there's the sunk cost fallacy is very real, and I think for Republicans investing, look, they they will have wasted three months trying to confirm a guy who didn't. Well, get that's confirmed. their fault because they took too long to get it get the vote. Yeah, I that, mean, honestly, mm -hmm. they waited because there were a lot of Republicans who thought, "Let's do this vote in October because it'll help us in the elections." No, completely. <laughs> that was not every not every Mitch McConnell strategy works. This really? one did not work. Yeah, uh, but that those policies I think make more sense than just the going to going to the bat for this guy who before mm -hmm. these allegations were not. Super popular. I mean, that was a. No, pro I think conservatives. He was not the pick. And you. That conservatives wanted and, and the hardcore. Talk, yeah. It was, it was basically Amy Barrett, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we've already seen her uh, make Democrats squirm. We want to see it. We see them squirm for 30, 40 years. Ideally, that would have been galvanizing. And I think if Democrats are honest, the ones I've talked to. Uh, one, they think she's as conservative. Two, it would it wouldn't be hard for a lot of them to vote against her. It would it might be more you know you might have more credibility if you're a conservative. If the women for Kavanaugh group was women for Barrett, it might have more credibility. <laughs> I saw some guys. Yeah, I know, the, there was a dude Kavanaugh wearing that. Outside. What yeah. is women up with that? Uh, no, that, that scenario yeah. politically makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I want to ask you quickly, uh, Amanda. You in your book uh, Gaslighting America, you talk about how you were gaslit by Trump and his supporters, uh, and how yep. Trump's female uh, accusers were gaslit these false narratives that were being spun. Are Kavanaugh's accusers being gaslit? Is Kavanaugh being gaslit? Uh, ye yes, there's a lot of gaslighting going on. The word is almost overused. I should have wrote, written that book three years ago to be ahead of the curve. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is all about when someone says something happened and trying to make an alternative reality. And I, I do identify with what's happening to Brett Kavanaugh if this is not true. Because during the 2016 election, there was a subjama where I got accused of having an affair with my boss. Did not happen. Um, but I had to prove that negative. And it was brutal. And so when I see Brett Kavanaugh testifying today and being brought to tears and being angry and then people saying, oh, he looks hysterical. He's losing it. I'm like, yeah, you lose it. When people come after you and your family like that, what are you supposed to do? Sit there calmly and fold your hands and say, no, that never happened? No, it is an emotional thing, but then they use it against you. All right, I'm going to pivot to talking about the race everybody here in Texas wants to talk about since we've talked about Kavanaugh enough um, today. Let's Texas 21? I want, to yeah, see, right. I want to see how everybody in Washington pronounces the names. <laughs> oh, the Lord. names in this race? There better not be a pop quiz. Let's talk about Beto. Let's talk about your former boss, Ted Cruz. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about what the margins are looking like in this race. Let's make a few predictions. Who wants to jump in? Dave, why don't you tell us what you're thinking and what you're seeing about this race? I as we've established, I literally just landed here. Uh, so I, don't, I, I hate when people come in from D.C. And, and kick back and say, let me tell you guys. That's why we invited happening. you, though. So you have a pass uh, today. I, what I could, I'll preface it by saying nationally, uh, you, you have friends who know you write about politics. The campaign they ask about is this one. Uh, they do not. I'll say, hey, let's, let's have a conversation about the Wisconsin. They don't care. <laughs> they want to talk about Beto. He's, he's become a viral star. Um, I've already had some Democrats who love him and want him to win, compare him to Jason Kander, i.e. someone who's exciting and has some kind of future. They're not sure what, but they yeah, don't quite think and pull it time. off. Mm -hmm. uh, I've not heard a deli the, the case for him being able to put all that, it, it, there, there, a case exists, but you hear Democrats more saying, we love this guy, we're not sure if it can happen. And there's always a cycle. Uh, every cycle, there are some people like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's tough to admit it before the election, but they're gonna be stars. We're not sure where this is gonna go. Yeah, I would say, Beto's, he's a great candidate. And I do think um, something that would concern me if I was still working for Ted Cruz is that he's not a candidate who makes mistakes. Um, you know, when you have a candidate like Cruz who's come up through the ranks, who's gone through a presidential cycle, you would expect someone like Beto to make mistakes. Um, that's not happening. And they're taking it very seriously. And, you know, one of the things that I think is not only, um, you know, causing friction, with Ted Cruz, but other Republicans, is how much the Republican base has shifted. It is much different than when Ted Cruz came on the scene in 2012 with you know these constitutionalist Tea Party types who you know have clear goals, and then the ground underneath shifted with Trump, where it became much more stylistic, um, a little more culty, much more about the candidate than any kind of binding principles, and so that's been very hard to navigate. Ross, what are the numbers looking like in Texas as far as you're concerned? You know, the, the weird thing about the polling I mentioned a minute ago is that the Senate race is so close and the governor's race right next to it is so wide. Mm -hmm. um, and it's Chris a, says, good, pull the Republican it's, it's a yeah. It's a straight party state. So if you're, you know, if you're voting straight ticket, um, 
if Beto and Cruz are that close, it's going to benefit a lot of people down line. Four mm -hmm. or five Republican congressional candidates are in trouble, mm -hmm. three or four, you know, in legislative Senate races and probably, you know, up to a dozen in House races could all um, get whacked by that. If everything sort of reverts to normal, you know, Texas numbers and Cruz gets a 10 or 12 or 20 point victory or whatever it is, then, you know, kind of the same as 2016, 2014. But mm -hmm. we've seen some of that in the polling. The Times uh, Siena polling has shown even in the 32nd and 7th, Democrats are in close races, but Beto is winning those suburban districts by you know, 10, 12 points. Right. Yeah, and the yeah. thing that just worries me nationally about all Republican candidates is that Republican women, bleeding women, and there seems to be no strategy um, to get them back besides just like doubling down on stuff that worked before. Um, you know, it's a problem, and I, one, I don't think they fully recognize it, and two, there's no strategy to address it whatsoever. Yeah, in Texas, some of the, one of the things that people cut away from the judge mentioned a minute ago was um, Republican women's reactions to family separations mm -hmm. was, um, was fast enough and harsh enough that yep. Trump signed an executive order very, very quickly. Um, and, Cr and Cruz moving on that quickly, I think, was a signal to a lot of people in D.C. This is not... This is not a winning issue for them if Ted Cruz within a couple of days is saying we need to fix They've this. They've still got this rolling yeah. problem, though. They've got 12,000 or so unaccompanied yeah. minors being held, being kept in detention at something on the order of $700 a day. Wasn't that the number the other day? Uh, it's costing a fortune. Mm -hmm. It's a policy that people don't support, and it's happening right here in late September, early October. Yeah, I would say there's a handful of issues I'm particularly concerned about when it comes to the women's vote. It's um, um, family detention, Me Too. Black Lives Matter and school shootings. I want to ask you about this issue of likability with regards to Ted Cruz that has come up. Yes, of course. I'm going to ask you. Come I have on, to tell here. people there are people that she like him. Yes, I say I this all the she time. Actually, on she actually recoiled from I'm you. I'm going to get there. Don't worry. <laughs> But, you know, obviously we have people like Mick Mulvaney, people in the Trump administration basically being recorded saying, you know, their concerns about the likability factor, you know. They don't want to say it's Trump. They don't want to say it's Trump. All right, fine, fair enough. But so is he a likable guy? Really, yes. truly? Yes, I work for him. He's fun to be around. I mean, we had a great office. I had, no, I will tell you. If you don't, hey, she's actually worked with the guy. I worked for him. Yep. And not only is he a great person to work for, he brought a great team together under very um, trying circumstances in 2013. He had dedicated staff that were the best people I have ever worked with. Um, truly great family-minded people. Um, I had two very young kids at the time. They put me in a senior level position knowing I had to leave on a train to be home with my kids at five every day. I was always a part of that team and we worked really hard and I will always be friends with those people and that's because of the people that Ted Cruz brought together. Likeable, not, what is this issue? Oh, I, I have not worked for him. Uh, you could argue that the media works for Beto, uh, but I think <laughs> I, 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 as somebody who's just interested in the race, uh, no, I, I even think some of the coverage of this campaign, um, he's said stuff that's been kind of his sense of humor that gets covered nationally as a crazy gaffe or a crazy mistake he made. The barbecue. Like, that's a good example. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. has, that, that was I had to tell what, people what in the dodge yeah. joke genre, yeah. the dodge yeah. joke yeah. genre, that, and yeah. it got treated as, as a gaffe. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, and uh, I think, uh, so within the media, uh, Beto, uh, he got to D.C., he was interesting to people, he gave reporters his cell phone, he texts you back, uh, he has handled the press in a, uh, in a very friendly way that is, is paid dividends, and then uh, in, in the town hall format, he sits there and he takes the questions, but so does, uh, so does Cruz. I've seen Republican candidates who are, people don't talk about their likability, whose general election campaign consists of refusing to debate and running a bunch of TV ads, which is not how he runs. Uh, and uh, I, I, I do think adjusting to any kind of competition outside of Republican primary has been, uh, he's, he's been learning as he goes, but the likability thing always strikes me as a little, little bit unfair. I, just being in the press, I know how much that's up to us <laughs> to say whether someone's likable or not. You know, one of the not. things I gotta mm -hmm. say, covering him in Texas was in some ways the, the way Beto's getting treated in 2018 is the way Ted Cruz was treated in 2012 in the primary. He was the rising star mm -hmm. running against a stodgy oh, yeah. incumbent. And, mm -hmm. you know, he was the guy who you would text him, he would text you right back. Yeah. It was, you know, the joke about that campaign was that it was four people in one card table. And, yeah. and it was kind of that for a little If reporters for little were interested while. in the campaign, they, right. you rode in the car with him for hours and hours right. talking to him. Yeah. Right. Uh, do we think that Donald Trump coming down to Texas to campaign for Ted Cruz is a good idea or a bad idea? I know why they're doing it. <laughs> okay, fine. Expand for our audience. Why are they doing it, and is it a good idea or a bad idea? 
it is important to the Republican base who wants Trump to be supporting Washington to know that there's no longer friction between those two. It was such a brutal primary, and the things they said were, well, Chris yeah, Going after Chris, his wife, going yeah, after yeah. his father. Chris, Chris didn't take those things back, but he's committed to working together, and so I think the rally is a demonstration of that, and I've got to say Ted Cruz is a bigger person than I am because I couldn't do it. I mean, there's a, there's a chance this is all a ruse and he's going to do a citizen's arrest of Raphael for killing JFK. Uh, no, my, assuming... my dream scenario is that someday he becomes AG. <laughs> yeah. And then the Russia investigation goes on. <laughs> but, uh, That's a joke. No, I think it, it, it is good. Something Maybe. else I, I, I notice is uh, Trump rallies, there have been countless, uh, we can probably count them, but they feel like they're, they're, there's one every day. Uh, they have this uh, very collatomized sort of uh, media coverage. Uh, if you watch it on TV, there is the coverage, and then pundits saying, wow, can you believe how, how weird that was? And if you watch Twitter, it's, wow, how you can believe how, how weird that was, with exclamation points and all caps and GIFs and things. Memes. And, but if you read the paper the next day, people are, it, the headline is, President rallies Republicans. And it's the quotes that he wants. And they usually end up uh, benefiting Republicans. I've been to places like in Pennsylvania, the special election this year, where it didn't quite pull it off. But I've not seen them truly backfire. I mean, people want to hear the guy and get, and get excited. Um, and the contrast will be, you know, I think Beto is not super interested in bringing many Democrats into campaign for him outside of Texas, right? So he'll hit that point, but that's what you always say. If he was running in Massachusetts, he would absolutely bring every, every Democrat into campaign for him. There's very, very little daylight mm -hmm. between Republican-based yeah. voters in Texas and Donald Trump. And, you know, you keep a distance from him at your peril unless, you know, in the case of Will Hurd, for example, it's a district where a little daylight might help. You know, that's, that's, that's the rare case. Trump needs to, to close that gap. Well, we're going to open this up to questions in just a couple of moments, so get ready. Uh, and while you're coming up with your genius ideas, I just want to hear from the three of you. What is another Texas race you are keeping your eyes on ahead of uh, ahead of November? Me? I, I, sure. I'd say yeah, all the, of you. The, well, uh, I'd actually say the attorney general race. I'm kind of curious, uh, especially mm -hmm. as, as having seen lots of races where AGs are running for Senate who signed on to the Kempax and healthcare lawsuit are just getting beaten, getting this, the daylights beaten out of them for, for joining it. I don't think it's as much of a problem here, but you know, he's got a credible opponent. I want to see if people pay enough attention down the ballot, because uh, uh, that one, because the, the House races, I think, uh, I would add the the ones that touch Austin, the uh, the 21st and the, and the 31st, yeah. Um, yep. If it's looking really bad, those are the kind of places, like Blake Ferenthal winning in, in 2010. Um, Hopefully the only time we mentioned his name in this, in this podcast. I didn't bring it up. It was you. <laughs> like keeps that. Floating, keeps floating back A situation up. where something is not on the map at all and they get surprised, uh, that's possible. But the AG race, I want to see what happens to him. Um, I'd say Texas 21. Uh, my yeah. former chief of staff, Chip Roy, um, who is Ted Cruz's chief of staff, is running there. And polling looks very good for him. And if he wins, he will certainly be one to watch in Washington. Mm-hmm. I think it's the John Carter race. I think he's the one that tells you whether this was some kind of different election in Texas. He's in a safe district for a Republican. He's running against MJ Hager, who's probably the only candidate I've ever heard of with the door of a helicopter in her dining room. That and ad. It's, it's a <laughs> great amazing. ad. And, she's, and she's, she's lit that district in a way that is you know, great if you're a challenger. And he was you know, gently slow to wake up. And that, that's the one sort of the watermark I'm watching. Thank you. All right, we're going to open it up. I, uh, we do have a microphone in the audience. Raise your hand. We're going to toss you a microphone. Maybe not toss, but we're going to come super fast to your microphone. And please introduce yourself. Hi, um, I'm Jonathan Weber. Uh, I'm from Houston. I have a question. After 2018, we're probably going to have a split House Senate. Even if we don't have a split House Senate, it's going to be very tight. What, uh, what gets done in Congress after this? Is it possible to get Trump to sign anything, or is it just like 2010, 2014, all over again, where it's just gridlock? No, I just say a lot of gridlock with the side of uh, impeachment hearings. Yeah, I, I think. Um, <laughs> On the House side. Delicious. So, <laughs> I, I, so uh, there was this ver very brief window in 2015, late 2015 when Democrats were thinking, Trump might be like Arnold Schwarzenegger was in California, where whatever will get him re-elected, re he'll do. Uh, if it's a humiliating election and Democrats say we want to raise the minimum wage and he realizes he can get credit for that, that's something he could do. There are a couple of policies he just has not had much of a, 
a coherent position on where Democrats might be able to pass it. Uh, when it comes to the investigations, yes, that's, I think, uh, I don't actually think impeachment of him is likely. I, I do think uh, Jerry Nadler, the, Elijah Cummings, the people who are going to be running oversight committees have an extremely long list of stuff they're going to go after him. But in terms of a productive thing, I think there's a couple of 80% issues Democrats favor that they would actually pass and see if he signs. So you're not giving up an infrastructure week? Oh, no, infrastructure week every week. There, that, <laughs> seriously, that is the context for an infrastructure bill is that he is convinced I'm up it. for re-election if I'm going and cutting ribbons in Michigan about uh, the new bridge to Canada, that might be better for me than answering more questions about the impeachment uh, the hearings. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I, think, I think that is a actually a possibility because <laughs> Democrats don't mind spending money. Yeah, yeah. Where's the mic out there? Right. Yes. It's always the other side of the room. I know. You guys saying we're not likable? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Anthony. I work for uh, Julie Oliver for Congress here in Texas 25. My question is for Ms. Carpenter. Um, I appreciate your willingness to uh, speak out against President Trump. Uh, two questions. Why do more Republicans not do that, elected officials? And second, is the reason purely uh, because they don't want to be primaried? Um, is it purely political? I think it's fear-based. I, you know, I think people are conflict adverse generally, but I never understood how much until Trump was elected. Um, people, yes, it's political. Yes, it's about not getting primaried, but it's also just about avoiding the ruckus and being afraid of not knowing what is going to happen. Politicians like to know, okay, if I vote this way, it will play well. They don't know anything with Trump. They don't know what he's gonna say tomorrow. They don't know who, what he's gonna tweet hour to hour. And so you get silence. And that to me is really the most stunning development in the era of Trump. What's his batting average on going into districts though? He's pretty awesome, isn't he? He's, he's, he wins the races he's for. He, he beats the people he's Not against. Not in Alabama. I mean, yeah. well, but well, that's one. But, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, on average, if you're a, a cowering member of Congress, you've got to look at the guy's uh, clout in these elections. But I think a lot of that to date has beca been because there's lack of a positive Democratic alternative. I mean, really, that's why he beat Hillary Clinton. There was so much resistance among the Republican base. I mean, there's just no way any general Republican voter would even consider voting for Hillary. And even now, I ask my Democratic friends, like, who are you going to run for president in 2020 that, you know, a Republican might like? And they just go, I don't know. Nobody knows. And if there's not a Democrat that is reasonable on a few issues important to Republicans, like the border, like abortion, like spending, you know, pick a couple, then they're going to continue to fall in line behind Trump. And I say that very seriously, because I do think we do need some kind of alternative. And I am afraid of what the 2020 election is gonna be like if it's as polarized as 2016. Dave, will it be as polarized as 2016? And are there names, Democratic names, that you would wanna throw out there this early that you think will rise to the top of the pile? Well, it will be that polarized because if you're at 40% approval, that's the only way you can possibly win. Uh, if you're, whatever, whatever office you're running for. I mean, if you go to New Jersey right now where Bob Enend is at 40%, he's just trying to nuke his opponent, it is not, fun to watch the ads in that, in that race. So I think it's gonna be like that. I don't, I, I'm not, covering both parties uh, pretty closely, some, you know, Democrats more closely at the moment, Republicans years, uh, years ago more closely. I think Republicans don't quite, uh, not you, but Republicans in, in like the Trump world, I think underestimate some of what Democrats are doing, or they assume, for example, that Democrats would nominate a bunch of crazy left-wingers who, who were running on impeachment and immediate nationalization of, of the healthcare system and like gul gulags for Fox News hosts. And they didn't. I mean, that's not MJ Hager. That's uh, not Joe Kopser. That's not uh, Gina Ortiz Jones. They did, they, oh, she's on for Medicare for All. But uh, I think they assumed the base was going to be wilder. And it is, frankly, because they assume symmetry. They assume that there'd be an equal reaction. Democrats are just more scared of their shadows. That's kind of their defining characteristic. Uh, <laughs> and I think they are going to, I've been talking to very liberal Democratic senators who you mentioned a liberal, one of the more liberal candidates, like Elizabeth Warren, and they just start wincing in a way you did not hear if, when, when asked about, um, frankly, Cruz. With Cruz, they were like, well, I don't quite see it, but he's running against Hillary. He's exciting, and I agree with him. Um, so there's going to be, the thing I'm waiting for, uh, there'll be, if, I mean, if Beto wins, yes, there'll be speculation about him that's going to drive everyone crazy. Uh, but I think there'll be other people who win in 2018 
similar to what happened with Rubio in 2010, they'll be, why can't this person run yet? Like uh, if Andrew Gillum wins in Florida, if um, Gretchen Whitmer wins in Michigan, they're both running for governor. Uh, and, and I think uh, your people at this conference, um, Mitch, Mitch Landrew, uh, Eric Garcia's not here, but um, some of the Democrats with lower, with lower profiles but interesting governing stories, you're going to hear more, more talk about them. Because the, the people, the, all, every liberal is going to, going to run, and even if they have a great election, I think there's going to be a lot of Democratic panic that we can't win with those, like more than there was on the Republican side. What do you think about a Julian Castro? Oh, I, I, think, I think he wishes he ran for Senate. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure if, if, if HUD to the presidency, there are, there are some countries where like that the cabinet secretary then becomes prime minister. I've seen lots of good BBC dramas where this happens. That's it's a not long quite, line of succession. It's not quite how This how is not one here. of those, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think he—he's uh, one of those guys. There's people I, I keep hearing it in percentage terms. People who went from like 70 to 20 to the. And I think as he's gone around the country, he's made connections, but also seen how tough it would be to break through. Yeah. Great. Other questions? Hi, yes, um, Hi. I'm Erin Rogers. I'm from Texarkana, and I kind of wanted to touch base on what you were just saying. Um, we spoke about Elizabeth Warren, and we have third-party candidates. But do you think having a multi-party system would kind of help prevent those polarizing politics that we seem to keep having? Uh, not with the electoral system that we have nationally. I, uh, so there's a lot of cities that uh, have ranking rank choice, and Maine just introduced it. Maine just had, is going to have a great election this November. Had a great one where there there were far left candidates, there were some far right candidates. Everyone had their top five choices, and they came out with people that they were generally happy with. Maybe they would have won anyway in a plurality, but um, in this electoral system, just the result every time is years of bitterness blaming the third party that people say cost the, the cost the election. It's just a matter of the first past the post system. The other thing I'd say is just if somebody follows a lot of European politics, the fringe parties have gotten in power in Europe with 12% of the vote because of the way that those systems are constituted, because the majority parties keep diminishing and splintering. So if, you, if you're worried about um, factionalization, uh, there's there's not a perfect one. There's not a perfect system. I do think that like cities and states, when they can pull it off, should find a way so that people just don't live every, end every election yelling at the green and the libertarian. Because <laughs> I'm kind of tired of that. <laughs> All right, we probably have time for about one more. Any others out there? Uh, I one, see. Way back oh, in the back. Maybe two. Of we got course. one here. One here. Let's. Way way in the back. Well, if you can use your outside voice, why don't we start with the one right here while we're getting back there? Go for it. Who do the who do the debates between Cruz and Beto uh, benefit and why? I, I mean, I think everybody. There, there has to be debates. I mean, everyone. I don't. I don't care. Ted Cruz is good. This guy's not as good. You got to do them. You have to draw the contrast before the public. I mean, that said, obviously Cruz does have experience on the national stage. But in one-on-one -on -one debate about Texas issues, you know, I think the playing field's a lot more even. Um, I think. You know, Ted Cruz's strategy was to kind of let Beto get in front of some issues like the assault weapons ban and some other things that are further kneeling. left. Yeah, kneeling um, to kind of, you know, all Republicans, as Dave was saying, want to make their opponent seem as the wild-eyed liberal candidate. And so, you know, that'll that'll be part of the game. Does likability matter there? <laughs> Back <laughs> well, to likability. Although this, this is the one place where you're seeing them both, and you're either going, "This is the beer with that guy." Moment, well, yeah, right? this yeah. is the, the, yes, this is a chance for candidates to get to know you and choose. So yeah, it does. Likability is important. Um, I'd also argue that it is important that voters think that the candidate will fight on those issues, and the ability for to fight on that is more important than likability. Yeah, likable enough, I'd add, came from Barack Obama <laughs> saying Hillary was likable enough, which epitomizes debates in 2018 for the last 20 years. They matter if you screw up. They matter if you say something cool yeah. and viral. And actually, both Cruz and Rourke have the ability to do both. Uh -huh. uh, more of the going viral than screwing up, frankly. Yeah. All right, let's hit this last one in the back. Thank you. Hi, my name is Pat Inman. I recently moved to Austin from Raleigh. And in state legislatures and in Congress, there's been a lot of nothing getting done for many years now, and I'm wondering if the Democrats win the House, 
whether how they'll be able to show the voters that they've accomplished something so they can win the White House uh, two years later. Uh, I'll just quickly repeat what I said earlier, which I think they're going to have a, a narrow agenda of stuff that everyone likes, like raising the minimum wage and like infrastructure. Uh, I mean, if it's Nancy Pelosi in charge again, she's been through this. She's been through, they win in 20, 2006, the economy craters, people blame the president, not them. So she has a model that worked once. Uh, I think they'd follow that, but it would be that big, that big, big picture stuff that they think would benefit both of them, but then Trump is unpopular and they're not as yet. Yeah, so it's going to be spend money and yeah. oversight hearings. Yeah, everyone loves spending money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, well, before you all run out the door, I just want to let you know we hope you'll join us for tonight's opening keynote featuring former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry in conversation with the Tribune CEO Evan Smith. It's at 7 p.m. at ACL Live. Doors open an hour before that, and you'll want to be there. Please join me in thanking our esteemed panelists, and thank you for joining us. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking.